Hello and welcome to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. At Emmanuel Croydon, we exist to be a community drawn together by our desire to know and follow Jesus. We long to become disciples of Jesus who are equipped to serve him in the whole of life, transforming families, communities and workplaces as we love God with heart, mind, soul and strength. We hope you enjoy this week's talk from the evening service. Thank you for joining us today. Grace and peace to you. The reading this evening is 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. And if you do have a pew Bible it's page 273. 1 Samuel chapter 2 Then Hannah prayed and said My heart rejoices in the Lord In the Lord my horn is lifted high My mouth boasts over my enemies For I delight in your deliverance There is no one holy like the Lord There is no one beside you There is no rock like our God Do not keep talking so proudly Or let your mouth speak such arrogance For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The the bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has borne many pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth, he humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everyone. Lovely to see you uh, again here this evening. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the second of a short little series in the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. I wonder how you think God works. What is his normal pattern of operation? If he has one, what's his modus operandi? If God were your boss... How would you explain his way of doing things to a new employee? If God were the head teacher, how would the school run? If God were a national leader, what should his subjects expect from the way he would govern? Well, these are important questions, of course, around uh, any leader in, in the workplace, the school, the government, of course. But since God is actually, in a sense, all of those things already... He's in charge of every part of our world. They they really matter in relation to him. 
it really matters how God works. As we consider the past, we try to make sense of the present. As we look to the future, we want to know, how can we expect God to work? What do we imagine he's going to be doing? Well, the good thing, I think, is that we don't, we don't have to guess. One of the reasons there is so much to our Bibles, they're so thick, is that the Old Testament is full of stories that help us understand how God works, that they illustrate the sort of thing that God does. The New Testament calls it various different things, sometimes a shadow. So the idea is that in the Old Testament, you sort of see an outline of the way that God works. And then you see it in full kind of technicolor in the New Testament. You know what you're looking for, though, by then, because you've seen the shadow. Or some theologians talk about types in the Old Testament. What they mean by that, Abraham, Moses, and David, are, they are types of Christ. They show us the type of person that he is, the type of work that he does. And here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, we come to another striking example of that. Quick recap to begin with, particularly if you weren't here last, uh, last week. In chapter 1, we read the story of Hannah. She is the second wife of Elkanah. Hannah has experienced the bitter sadness of being unable to have children. And to make matters worse, Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah, would pick on Hannah for that. Uh, and they'd make this annual pilgrimage uh, with the family to worship the Lord at, at Shiloh. And this even much more greatly deepened her sense of loss as she'd look over at her rival's uh, children. Even worse still, we discovered last week, when she poured out her heart and her grief to the Lord at Shiloh, the high priest who saw her doing so ridiculed her. He said, look, you've had too much to drink. But undeterred, she, she brought her request to God. She promised to give back to the Lord in his service. And then she went away, astonishingly, at peace. And then in time, we're told that she does have a son. And when he's weaned, she brings him to the temple to serve the Lord there. Now, last week, we, if you missed it, go, go and have a look online. We've, we focused on Hannah as this kind of hero of faith, someone to emulate in her dependence on the Lord. But for all the kind of personal encouragement that, that this, this story has in the kind of be like Hannah perspective, there's still quite a lot of loose ends. There's still quite a lot more to be discovered here. You may have noticed, for example, in verse 5 of chapter 1, and by the way, if you've got it, if you've got a mobile or something like that, dial up uh, 1 Samuel. It'll be really helpful for you to be able to follow us along. We're going ma mainly in chapter 2, just briefly in chapter 1 here. Verse 5 of chapter 1 tells us that the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed it. It's a really strange line, if you like. Not least because he then later opens it, apparently. And we may well ask, well, did she really have to go through all of this in the first place? And then there's this business of her leaving her, her only just weaned son for life at the temple. So she makes this promise to God, you know, if, 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 if you give me a son, I'll devote him to you. And then she comes to the temple and leaves him there. Now, that's clearly an impressive token of devotion. But it's also a bit surprising, right? When we love kids at Emmanuel, you know, we love it when, you know, parents bring their kids, and for the avoidance of any doubt, we, we, we appreciate having them at, you know, 
Friday Rocks and Sunday School and the creche and our midweek groups for teens. And thank you, by the way, to all those people who serve in those ministries. It's wonderful. And we appreciate our parents dropping them off. But we also appreciate our parents picking them up again and taking them away. And it would be a dreadful misreading, would it not, of 1 Samuel 1, to imagine that true devotion means leaving all your children here with me. But that's what Hannah does. And of course, the problem is not the awkwardness for the priests, but what about this relationship between mother and child? So what is that all about? Well, that's where we get to chapter 2. And we're looking at these verses 1 to 11. It's, it's a song, Hannah's song. And we're going to see how, as this chapter goes on, the focus shifts. Verse 1 begins with this focus still on Hannah. And you can hear all the, all the my's and the eyes. It's all about her experience. But as this song goes on, you skip on to the end, verse 10. It's, the focus is somewhere completely different. She says, the Lord, the Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah ends this song, which has started off very much in her own world, singing about some king. Some king she, she shouldn't even know is going to exist. And so as we read on, we realize ultimately this incident with Hannah isn't just about her or our private faith. It's not even really about Hannah. It's about the Lord's much wider and greater plan to to raise up a king who's going to set the world straight. And Hannah, just like Mary, raises her gaze onto the world stage, and she looks at the whole stage of human history, as it were. And she joins the dots between her own experience and then what God is going to do forever, and his, his way of working, a way of working that reaches its greatest fulfillment, actually, in the cross. And through it all, we discover this amazing truth. We discover that God is the great reverser. How does God work? This is, what, this is how he works. He works by reversal. And I'm praying that today we're going to recognize that, that way of working here in these, these chapters. And then we're going to see it worked out in the life of Jesus. And then that we're going to begin to see how he might be at work in surprising ways, even in our own lives too. He's the Lord of the reversal, the Lord of the reversal. And I'm going to just walk us through four reversals that happen here in 1 Samuel 2 and how they might apply to us. Number one, the Lord turns sadness to joy. He turns sadness to joy. Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. This is kind of a picture of triumph here. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your, in God's salvation. Now here is the woman, if you were with us last week, who was just so desperately sad, so sad she couldn't eat, who cried so hard and so desperately to the Lord that the priests accused her of being drunk. And that sadness has been turned to joy. Now, most of us, if we've read the story, might say, well, sure, that's pretty obvious. You know, she's, she's got the thing that she so wanted. She's going to have a child. But there's more to Hannah's joy than that. You see what she is rejoicing in. It says, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Your salvation. Many hundreds of years later, there were two women who were standing by an empty tomb. 
And they were desperately sad. They'd lost their friend. And to make things worse, they weren't even sure where his body was to mourn over him. But then Jesus appeared to them. He was alive. And because he was alive, they and we can know life forever. Forever there would be no more fundamental sadness, pain or tears. These, these are going to be former things. They're going to pass away. And so this is what God does. He turns sadness to joy. Now, I wonder if you've known that reversal in your life. I wonder if you'd had the Lord transform, transform even your deepest sorrows with his joy. Now, this is not a quick fix. The way the Lord works sometimes takes a very long time in our own lives. Sometimes takes generations and generations. And indeed, there's still joy in the future to be had for us that we will not know until eternity. But that's the way God works. He turns sadness to joy. Number two, the Lord makes a barren woman give birth. The Lord makes a barren woman give birth. It's an interesting thing to be reading, isn't it, as we're thinking about Advent. She says, Hannah, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. We thought last week about the pain of childlessness. And it is a great pain for any of us who have known or come close to it. But without minimizing it in our culture, we've got to recognize it was harder even on another level in Hannah's day. Hannah's situation was not only emotionally, but it was materially catastrophic. So there was no career, of course, for Hannah to pursue outside of the home. There were no independent interests for her to follow. And of course, there would be no one to care for her in her old age if she didn't have children. But the Lord turns that around. And he miraculously gives her a son. But what Hannah says in her song is not exactly that. She doesn't say, I didn't have a child, he's given me one. She says, the barren is born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. She says, that this is the kind of thing God does. This is the kind of thing he always does in fulfilling his purposes. Now, Let's be clear what she's not saying here. It's not that Christians are immune from the sadness of not having their own family for whatever reason. And that maybe will, may well be you this evening. That may be very painful. And of course, that continues to happen. But it is something, that particular situation, is something that God has turned around more than once. Right? If you know your Bible, can you think of some other times? Sarah, Abraham's wife. Think of Ruth. The Moabite, Moabites, after whom the biblical book is named. We could think of many more. Many years down the line, of course, if you've been reading uh, Luke, a chapter of Luke a day through Advent, that's what we're doing, 24 chapters, one a day, brilliant. Uh, well done for getting so, as far as you have. By the way, the first chapter's got 80 verses. They're all shorter after that. If you got this far, you've nailed it, basically. It's downhill from now on. The first chapter, what do we read first of all? Elizabeth. Elizabeth and Zechariah's story, again, hitherto childless. And of course, Mary, who for other reasons is, ha, had not had a child, and she conceives miraculously and gives birth to a son, Jesus Christ. So this seems to be the way that God works. Now, why does God work like this? Why does God choose to work through 
these women? Well, he does it, it seems, because he chooses them to bring his anointed leaders into the world as miracle babies. And I think he does that because it shouts out to the world, look, this one is from me. I made this one happen, God says. This life could only have ever been my doing. And so these amazing stories, they underline God's sovereignty. That's why Hannah says in verse 6, she says, The Lord kills and the Lord brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. She means on one level, look, you know, God's just in charge. But on another level, look, I, I, I had this lifeless womb, as it were. And God's brought life out of it. He's brought a son out of it. But actually, she's kind of saying even more than that. She's sort of saying more than she knows. She's talking about how many years later, mankind would, would see the, the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Christ's execution was like the reversal of birth. Put back in the dark. Life turned to death. But out of the barrenness of the tomb, as it were, God is going to bring new life. And as he brings that new life, he's going to not just bring Jesus' life, but, but eternal life for everyone who believes. So do you see this second reversal? This, the Lord making a barren woman give birth. It's like a picture of what he does. Bring life. The Lord makes a barren woman give birth. Thirdly, the Lord makes the powerless prosper. The Lord makes the powerless prosper. I wonder what it would be like to be in Hannah's time. It takes some thinking. In her culture, Hannah would have known this all too well. She was, she was very familiar what it meant to be powerless. You can feel it in her song. She, she says, verse 7, The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And, you know, we've got to think back into her time, particularly because of Hannah's sex, the, the fact that she's a woman. That's part of what makes her, her poor and needy. In her culture, she's just a tiny bit part of history. And, of course, because history tends to be written and told by the powerful, it's often the men who have been written into history as the main characters. And so Hannah's story is actually a bit of a surprise because God doesn't write history the way that people write history. He writes it through the women. So there's this amazing reversal here. This book of the Bible is going to major on, on Samuel the prophet, who's going to be... That's Hannah's son. And he's in turn going to anoint David the king. And if you trace that lineage on, you get to David's greatest son, Jesus. But all of it begins with Hannah. Powerless Hannah. None of it is, poss is possible without Hannah. This, this woman, Hannah, she is the one whose story sets it all in motion. And of course, it's going to be the same with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And to be clear, I'm not just drawing parallels here. There's a bigger message. Both of these are just examples of God's general way of working. Now, it's wonderful that we live in times when that division between the sexes is not the same now as it was before, though. Doubtless, there's a long way to go. Tom Holland writes this, though. Thinking back over the history, 
One of the problems with writing about the history of something like Christianity is that you cannot help but deal in headlines, and the headlines tend to be written by powerful men. But it's clear that by and large, generation after generation after generation, the primary influence tends to have been women, mothers, godmothers, Sunday school teachers, whatever. Now, don't hear me mishear what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's not that God has a preference for women over men. But that his favorite way of operating is by reversal, by turning the world on its head. And so in these situations where historically, sadly, so many women have been powerless, he raises them up. And those many years later, God deliberately comes to that unsuspecting girl in Galilee to do just the same kind of thing, to make his power known. Now, one take home for us here, I guess, is, is to see the world as God sees it. I wonder how you see the world, how you see the people in your life. So who looms large and who sort of fades into the background? Do you remember that experience of being at school and, and you pick the teams? I don't know whether they still do that. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? Pick the teams in the playground. And, you know, the, the good people get picked first. And then you get to that really miserable bit where there's like one or two left. And, you know, well, the people you and I would pick first in the playground, God doesn't seem to go for those. And that's still true. Even today, the people God uses are often the unlikely people. It's easy to get into thinking, it's not like that, isn't it? It's easy to get into thinking, okay, our, our friends will come to Christ. They'll really be persuaded if they can meet someone who's really dynamic and cool and sporty and really with it and, you know, a really great advert for the Christian faith. Or, you know, people will, will come to faith if they come into a church that's really vibrant and, you know, really with it and has amazing lighting. I love the lighting. But, you, you know, it's easy to think about that. Or, or to worry that we will never mean anything in God's plans if we're not that, though, that kind of person. We don't have that kind of status. But that's actually not how God works. The Lord makes the powerless prosper. But there's something even more important to grasp here. Do you know, it's, it's actually the way the whole of the Christian gospel works. This is the amazing good news of the gospel, right? All of us are powerless. All of us are spiritually powerless. We, we can't save ourselves. Have you ever tried it? Have you ever tried just clenching your fist, just trying really hard to be good? It doesn't work. But the good news is God is not waiting for us to come up with the goods before he lets us in. He, he's not up there kind of raising the moral bar as we try to, to reach it. Come on, come on, try harder. He's not like that. In fact, you don't have to have anything to offer to God in order to be accepted by him. Except perhaps one thing. You need to be able to admit your poverty. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because that's actually all it takes to be blessed. We, just, we need to recognize our, our spiritual poverty before God. And then he promises to raise us up, to seat us with princes, as it were. And so, as verse 9 puts it, he will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a person prevail. Not by might. Yeah. Gaining God's acceptance, forgiveness, not something we do by, by strength of effort. It's Jesus who's done it. 
It's his might displayed in his death and resurrection. So I want to ask you this evening, do you see how good that is? Because whether or not you, you, you know yourself to be a Christian, you have for some time, I think it's possible, even as a Christian, to just be running. To just be running to live a life that's good enough for God. Good enough to qualify. And we can get exhausted just trying to keep up with that spiritual pace runner that we have somewhere ahead of us. Is your Christian life a life of trying and trying and trying so that perhaps you might make the grade one day? God will spot it. Well, there's no need for that. There's no need. What you need is faith in the power of Jesus because the Lord makes the powerless prosper. The Lord makes the powerless prosper. One more thought before we finish. And this one kind of turns it on his head. The last reversal. The Lord brings low the proud. He turns sadness to joy. He makes the barren woman give birth. He makes the powerless prosper. And then finally, he brings low the proud. Hannah says in verse 2, she says, There's none holy like God. There's none besides you. There's no rock like our God. So talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And she says again, verse 10, the adversary of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is kind of the flip side of what we've already seen, right? The lowly get raised up, but the proud must also be brought low. Now, as Hannah was singing her song, perhaps she was thinking, first of all, of her rival, Penina. Do you remember? Penina really goaded her every year, saying, ah, look, you, you've got no, no, no children. But if these verses are true more broadly, then, then it's kind of for any moment. Proud and arrogant talk, which we're all given to, I know, I find so often it's true for me, it's never right. It's out of place firstly because if God is the one who brings low and the one who exalts then anything that we have is not from us our, our assets and achievements you know they're only that we only have them because of his kindness in the first place and second pride is a problem because it it's it's an attempt to to seat ourselves alongside the Lord you know those moments when we're like I, I, I want to be center stage I, I want I want first place I want the highest honor that's, that's the moment we're putting ourselves where God is supposed to be. And Hannah rightly says, there's none besides you, God. Pride says instead, I'm right there in the special stakes. And that's an issue. And then third, of course, pride is a problem because it attracts God's judgment. That, that's what Hannah says. She says, pride is not just an ugly habit. It's not just I don't like people like that. Actually, it attracts the eternal thunder of heaven. And that too gets played out in the ministry of of King Jesus. You know, his mercy is freely available, except to the proud. He really has a go at those who say that they're good enough, to those who believe they were well in there with God, you know, that they had all the brownie points they were going to need and they didn't need any help. To them, to those who rely on, the, on their own respectable religious reputation, to the strong, to the powerful, Jesus says, I'm, I've not come for you. Now, this doesn't need to frighten us at all. 
there's no need for any of us to face that judgment because humbling ourselves costs absolutely nothing apart from a bit of face, as it were. But it does need to happen because the Lord brings low the proud. So I'm going to wrap up there. There's four great reversals. The Lord turns sadness to joy. He makes a barren woman give birth. He makes the powerless prosper. And he brings low the proud because he's the Lord of the reversal. That's how he works. What's the answer to the question? How does God work? He takes things and he turns them round. That's the kind of God that we have. And he's done that in the cross of the Lord Jesus supremely. He's going to do it at the end of time in a way that is going to blow our minds. Except it won't because by then we'll have minds that can cope with it. And in between now and then, he is again and again going to show himself in our lives to be the God of the reversal. So I wonder if we can just take a little bit of time to just, just think about that. Just a little bit of silence. Perhaps just cast your mind back to what the situations are where you find yourself lining up like Hannah. As we just think about that, I'm just going to invite the the band to come up and, and join me here. So perhaps have a think. Are you in the midst of one of those reversals? Are you, are you in one of those situations where you're, where you're going under with no hope that good may come? Or perhaps today is the, is the day for you to bring that situation to the Lord like Hannah. Perhaps on the other hand, you're, you're flying high and you're at risk of believing your own hype. You're, you're dining out on your own momentum. And it's, it's time for you to recognize that the Lord is the one who also brings low the proud. And to come to him in humility. But wherever you are, I want to invite us all as we close to come back to the cross. Perhaps in your mind's eye, look at that picture of the cross. The great reversal, the Son of God dying for us who has suffered the, great, the greatest reversal so that we might not have to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for teaching us this evening. Lord, we thank you for casting our minds back to the story of one woman so many hundreds of years ago. Lord, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see the great reversals that you have done in our own lives. The great reversal of the cross and the reversal of eternity as well. When we return, when you return to this world that you have made. Thanks for listening to the Emmanuel Croydon podcast. For more information about our church and everything we have going on, visit our website, emmanuelcroydon.org.uk You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to see and hear what's going on in the life of our church. God bless you and have a wonderful week.